couldn't help but think. Um, it's a joy for us to gather every week. And even as we sing, we get to sing our theology, don't we? We get to sing that uh, as dark as our sin would be, His mercy is always more, more, more. We get to celebrate the great I Am. Uh, starting next week, we're going to be uh, addressing the question, if the gospel really is above all, then how does it affect the way we see Jesus? And we're going to walk through the great I Am statements in the Gospel of John in preparation for Easter. Ending on Easter Sunday morning, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And we're going to celebrate that together. So, oh, what a wonderful way for us to prepare our hearts to hear the Word of God. Um, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, just a few things while you're turning there. Um, just a reminder, as soon as worship is over, uh, we have an opportunity to be involved in small group Bible study. It's a way that we see how we belong together uh, in the body of Christ. If you're not in a small group Bible study, right through these doors and to the right, we have a new uh, Bible study class that meets in the choir room, starts at 10.15. I'm walking through the book of Philippians, and today we're going to be talking about suffering. How do we see our suffering? And we're going to be walking through that in Philippians chapter 1 today. Also, if you're not a member of our church and would like to uh, just find out who we are, what we believe, where we're headed today at 5 o'clock in the upper room is our Point of Impact membership class. And we want to invite you, a few years ago, our church changed our constitution and bylaws and made a membership class a part of the membership process at our church. I think it's a wonderful way for us to communicate with people what it means to be a part of the First Baptist Church family. And so I would invite you to come and be a part of that. Also, just as a reminder, coming up next Sunday, March the 1st, we have deacon ordination. Uh, next week, we're going to be celebrating with uh, Whitney and Christina Woodard as um, uh, we celebrate his ordination as a, a deacon. Let me give you something to praise the Lord about. Today, as uh, Pastor Derek mentioned earlier, uh, the number of teenagers that have come to faith in Christ. Um, today, at our Eagle Point campus, we're seeing four following the Lord in believers' baptism. Isn't that great? And I'll show you some pictures uh, hopefully next week, and we'll celebrate with them. And I wanted to share with you, um, uh, matter of fact, Emmett Roper. Uh, Emmett uh, told me I would not be a good pastor if I didn't tell you this story. Um, but I, I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can. You'll remember that a few years ago, uh, some of our dear friends, Julie and, and mine, some of our dear friends lost their 15-year-old son tragically in a boat accident. Uh, Julie and I went down to Florida. I preached uh, Jimmy Graves' funeral. Um, since then, Joe and Carol Graves have adopted uh, two daughters, two girls um, from, I believe, Guatemala, but I'm not certain on that. Anyway, um, a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night about 8.30, I got a, a text from Joe asking me if I was awake, which is always a good question because usually at 8.30 I'm not. 
Um, but I, I was, and so anyway, he called, and I put him on speakerphone so Julie could listen. And um, they had been teaching these girls English through reading the Word of God. And so they had questions about Jesus, and so I got to answer their questions. And to make a long story short, both of those girls wanted to turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And right there over the phone to hear those girls in their broken English confess Jesus Christ as the Lord of their lives. I could hear Joe and Carol um, very emotional in the background as these girls were trusting uh, Jesus Christ. And then he called me later and said, uh, after you hung up, I started talking to the girls about baptism. And they said, well, why can't that man that shared Jesus baptize us? Make a long story short, on March the 15th, they're going to be here and we're going to baptize their daughters. Isn't that a great celebration? We give God uh, praise uh, for that. As we go to the Lord in prayer today, um, I know that there are families in our church that are always in desperate need of prayer. One in particular I want us to, to pray for. Miss Geraldine, we're going to be, uh, where is Geraldine? We're going to be praying for your family today and lifting your family before the Lord and the things, the cancer and other things that they are, are dealing with. And uh, I hope that you are aware Every Sunday when we gather for worship, there are people seated right here among us and they are dealing with a lot of stuff. And the weight of that can be very heavy. And so I want to invite you to join me in praying that we will all take our burdens, our cares, our concerns and cast them at the feet of Jesus because He is a great Savior. And uh, He can make our burden light. Amen. So let's do that. Let's go before the Lord together. Our Heavenly Father, You are a God full, rich in loving kindness. Rich in mercy. Grace, you're a great and mighty God. And yes, Father, even when we are aware that our sins, they are many, we give you praise because your mercy is more, more, more. Thank you, Father, for loving us in spite of us. Thank you, Father, for giving us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might have eternal life. I pray, Heavenly Father, right now, every burden on every heart in this room, I pray that it would be cast upon Jesus. I'm thankful, Father, that we can cast our cares upon Jesus because He cares for us so much. And I pray that our burdens today would become light because our Savior is great enough to address them and carry them for us. Father, as we turn to the Word of God, as we wrap up our 
understanding of how the gospel affects marriage. And as we talk about the key to a heaven-bound marriage, I pray, Heavenly Father, that your word would be our guide. Your spirit, our teacher. Your glory, always our chief concern. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. May my message and preaching today not be with wise and persuasive words of human wisdom, but Father, may it be in a demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God so that our faith would not rest on any man's wisdom, but it would rest upon the power of God, the one who loves, the one who cares, the one who redeems, the one who saves, and the one who gives us eternity. So we cast our lives upon you, O God, and ask that you would meet with us, in us, and through us this very moment. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Every husband in this room answers a question from their spouse the same way. If my wife were to say, hey, let's you know, go to the movies or let's rent a movie, I know to ask, and every husband really does, I know to ask this question, is it a chick flick or a guy flick, right? We know that there's a clear difference. Um, uh, Hallmark movies, for example, which are chick flicks. We agree on this. Um, They're all the same. The plot of every single Hallmark movie ever made is exactly the same. It's always about a career woman who's too busy and has to move to a small town where she was raised to help her parents with their failing family business. She only plans to stay there a short time because she's got to return to the big city. Why? Because she's got a big city job and she's got a big city fiancé. Right? She knows her fiancé is not right for her, but she is bound and determined to marry him. So whenever she arrives in her hometown, she meets a local handsome bachelor who happens to be somebody she went to school with. And uh, he teaches her right over the course of the movie about the true spirit of Christmas. And then you zero in at the very end. They fall in love and on Christmas Eve, as it starts to snow, they confess their love to one another and they kiss. The end, right? That's Hallmark. That is Hallmark. And you just can't help it. It's kind of like staring into the sun. You know it will blind you, but you just can't resist, right? Guy flicks are different. Guy movies are different. They end at just the right spot. And it's usually when somebody dies, right? A western never ends before the two main characters face off in the street. Guns blazing, right? As Clint Eastwood, go ahead, make my day. War movies don't end as the bombing raid begins. War movies end with Tom Hanks leaning against a jeep all shot up, you know, and his last words before he dies are, earn this. Sports movies don't end until you see how the game turned out. Sports movies end when the uh, local boy from a small town in Indiana takes the last shot to beat this giant school and win the Indiana High School Championship. Sports movies don't end until a group of college guys come together as a team and beat the Soviets in hockey. 
Right? I mean, yesterday was the 40-year anniversary of the miracle on ice, and so I watched it yesterday afternoon in their honor, and I still shed some man tears, even though I knew how it was going to turn out. There are differences. There are differences in the realm of marriage. There are differences in a marriage realm where sinners say, I do, right? Where daily imperfection meets daily imperfection. And so we need to find the key to a lasting marriage. And that key is actually at the very heart and core of the gospel. I wanted to end this February marriage focus this way. Because this is the key to every life, it's the key to every heart, it's the key to every home. And it is the key to every single person. A husband, a wife, a future husband, a future wife. It's the key to every person who longs for more. And so that's what I want us to see today. What is the key to a heaven-bound marriage? And the key is simply this, you need grace to run the race. You need grace to run the race. Our New Testament contains 155 references to grace. And 130 of them come from the Apostle Paul. In fact, when you read Paul's letter, right, it typically opens and closes and dominates everything that he writes. It defines his life. It defines his teaching. Grace becomes the key by which the Apostle Paul measured his life. Speaking of grace, the great preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there is no more wonderful word than grace. It means unmerited favor or kindness shown to one who is utterly undeserving. It's not merely a free gift, but it is a free gift to those who know that they deserve the exact opposite. And it is given to us while we are without hope and without God in the world. And so Martin Lowe-Jones would commonly say grace is a five-letter word and it is spelled Jesus. Right? His great scripture passage that he loved the most, Ephesians 2, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. Grace can only come from God. It is a gift, unsought, unmerited, unlimited. Right? We rejoice today no matter what we have done, no matter the depth of our sin, no matter the darkness of our hearts. Grace overrules them all. And so we give God praise for that. The Apostle Paul is able to speak of grace because he had personally come to understand that a moment of grace can change a life. He experienced it personally on the Damascus Road. A moment of grace can change a life. A moment of grace can change a heart. A moment of grace can change a marriage. A moment of grace can change eternity. And that is what the Word of God teaches us. So here's what I want you to see from our text this morning. Grace gives us a Redeemer. Paul says in his letter to Titus, 
In verse 11, and then the first part of verse 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then the first of verse 14, Who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. For the grace of God brings salvation to all people. God rightly could have sent His Son to condemn and judge us. Instead, He came to save us. John 3, 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. The grace of God, unmerited favor, His goodness, His kindness, His compassion that is demonstrated to undeserving sinners. It is the grace of God that brings salvation. It's the grace of God that brings deliverance. It's the grace of God that brings rescue from the judgment of sin. And notice Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared. Has appeared. The word appeared is from the Greek word where we get our English word epiphany. Right? A sudden and intense realization of truth. When the Greeks spoke of epiphany, they were referring to the breathtaking view of sunlight that burst into a darkened world. It's God making Himself known in a way that He was previously unknown. The grace of God, which suddenly brings light to a world that for thousands of years had been in darkness. And it explodes upon the scene in the person of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh. God literally pitched His tent among humanity. Why? So that humanity could have the hope of heaven. So that every man, woman, boy, and girl could turn from all known sin and trust in Jesus Christ and know that their debt has been paid and that God no longer sees them as someone under condemnation, but now God sees them through the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are in Christ, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. See, grace was imperative when it was introduced in Jesus Christ, who himself provided the solution to our sinful nature. Why? Because grace goes against our system that we're all familiar with here today. It's called the merit system. Every human being functions under the merit system. If you do well in school, you get good grades. If you do well in sports, you make the team. I I tell kids all the time who tell me, you know, they they play basketball. And so I give them the Derek Staples philosophy of basketball, which is if you don't shoot, you don't score. If you don't score, you don't get your name in the paper. right? So there it is. If you do good in college, right, you get put on the dean's list. If you do good at your job, you get promotions, you get raises. We've transferred all of that to the spiritual realm where if you live a good life, if you do good deeds, if you pray as much as you can and read the Word and you know go to, go to church, then that's going to merit something. It's going to balance when you stand before God and give an account for your life. It wasn't just at the heart of 
Pharisaic, legalistic religion. It was at the heart of every human being. Everyone. And it was in the midst of that merit system that grace appeared in Jesus Christ. Listen, dear ones, this is a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance. Every sin of every person finds its answer in Jesus. Everyone. All of us who are here today, I don't know what your issues are. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you're struggling with. But I do know that the answer to all of life's dilemmas is the Lord Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with Him. No nation, no tongue, no people or person is excluded from the saving work of Jesus Christ. His gracious gift of salvation, the text says, has appeared for everyone. I mean, this is you and this is me. Now, I do think a crucial point needs to be clear today. And it is simply this. No grace, no salvation. No grace, no salvation. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace, God's grace, but it does not mean that all people are or will be saved. When we study the Word of God, one thing is crystal clear to us. There are two separate final destinations for every person. Those who by God's grace believe in Jesus go to heaven. And those who by their own merit system do not believe in Jesus pay the penalty of eternal separation from God in hell. And hell is a place of torment. It is a real people for real people who have rejected a real Savior. Notice, if you have your Bible open, Something that Paul says in chapter 3. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Right, Not because of works we've done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is Paul showing us in his letter to Titus? Simply this, grace gives us a Redeemer. So instead of just doing application at the end, let me give you a little bit now. Let me give you something to think about. Today, husbands and wives, one day you will stand before God and give an account for your life. Are you ready? Are you ready for that? Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Every single one of us in this house today are going to stand before God and give an account. Are you ready? Because if you're not... 
if you've chosen your way over Christ's way. If you'd rather trust in your merit system instead of God's grace, can I just ask you, please, I mean, be honest. How's that really working for you? And you have to be honest and say it doesn't. There is no real peace outside of the person of Jesus Christ. Can I also say here, moms and dads, one day your kids are going to be standing before the Lord too. How are you preparing them? How are you teaching your children that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is imperative? Are you sharing that message with your sons and with your daughters? Grace gives us a Redeemer. Secondly, grace teaches us how to live. And that's what Paul says in verse 12. And the latter part of verse 14. He says, training us, instructing us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And to purify for himself a people for their own possession who are zealous for good works. So Paul says that the grace of God that saves is the same grace of God that teaches and instructs. It's the grace that trains us up. It's the grace that shows us if you've really come to faith in Christ, this is how you live. I mean, if I come to faith in Christ and my life is no different than it was six months later, a year later, can I really say I've come to faith in Christ? If you've seen no difference in your life once you've come to faith in Christ, I don't know what you've come to, but I'm not certain it's Jesus. Because grace redeems, and then grace trains us, instructs us. It raises us up to lead new lives. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, and the old is gone, and the new has come. Grace, notice how it instructs us on how to live. First, toward ourselves, right? Notice the words denying ungodliness and worldly passions. So it's about grace teaching us how to live toward ourselves, It's grace teaching us how to live toward others. Notice the words self-controlled and upright. In other words, grace is teaching me how to live, not just when I'm looking at me, but when others are looking at me. Not when I'm just talking about myself, but when others are talking about me based on what they see and based on what they hear. Grace teaches us how to live toward ourselves. It teaches us how to live toward others. And then also notice, it teaches us how to live toward God. That we would lead godly lives. When? Right now, today, in this present age. It's a change. I was amazed again uh, yesterday afternoon watching the miracle on ice. Now, Coach Herb Brooks takes a group of college hockey players from all over the country 
And he makes them into a team. And he trains them up. Right? So they go to like Sweden and they play a game and the guys are looking at girls in the stands. And so when it's over, man, you know the scene if you've seen the movie. They're on the line and again and again and again and again they're running and running. And finally one of them gets it. And he says, my name is Mike Eruzioni from Boston, Massachusetts. And I play for the United States of America. And it reaffirms what Coach Herb Brooks says. The name on the front is more important than the name on the back. You may wear your name on your shoulders, but Jesus Christ is the front stamp of your life. And it is the grace of God that trains us up. I mean, every one of us in this room have heard the phrase, just say no. Well, it comes from grace. When we believe in Christ, we are enrolled in the school of living. Turning from ungodly living to godly living. Why? Because when Jesus comes into a life, things change. Begs the question, doesn't it? If you and I have no life change, we must ask the question do we really have Jesus? Well, let me apply this for us. How are you living right now today? How are you living since you've come to Christ? Right? What has changed in you? What do others see in you? What does God see in you? Grace gives us a Redeemer. And grace teaches us how to live. Third, grace looks beyond here to the hereafter. Grace looks beyond here to the hereafter. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Living in this present age is a constant reminder that there is an age to come. Friday afternoons I meet with some college guys who many of whom are preparing for seminary. And so we meet up at Java Jolt and we talk theology. And it's great fun for me. I don't know if it's fun for them, but I sure enjoy hanging with these guys. One of the things we talked about this past Friday, Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity in the heart of man, in the life of every single person in this room. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart that only Jesus Christ can fill. God has put eternity in your heart. So when tragedy strikes, when... Someone passes away, especially if it's accidental or sudden. It's like a neon sign, isn't it? And it's just pointing us to the fact that beyond this life, 
lies a shoreless ocean of time called eternity. The Bible, over and over again, reminds us that this earth is not our home. It's not my final destination. Like Abraham, we wait for a city, we long for a city which has eternal foundations, whose builder and architect is God. You know what this means today, dear ones? This means that you and I need to live our lives like Jesus Christ was born this morning, was crucified at lunch, and is coming back this afternoon. That's what it means. And this waiting, it's it's not like a, a criminal on death row waiting for the day of execution. It's not like a child waiting for summer and summer vacation. We're not just looking for anyone from heaven. I have dear family that's there, and so do you. And as much as we love them, I'm not waiting for my mom to come back. I'm not looking for her or any of my friends. I'm I'm not looking either for, for Gabriel. The angel or any of the angels. I'm just waiting for Jesus. We look for one who is our great God and Savior, Paul says. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe at this church in the imminent return of Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ biblically could return at any moment. Before I finish this sermon, before you finish your next thought. Right? Christ will appear, the trump will sound, the dead in Christ will raise, those who are alive and remain are caught up to meet Him in the air, and thus shall we forever be with the Lord. It is a great day, and it awaits us. Are you ready for that day? It is later than it has ever been in the history of the world. And with every passing hour, the words of James chapter 5, verse 8 take on added significance where James says the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so my application for you is are you living every moment as if Jesus Christ were coming right now? Right now. Because He could. So you should ask yourself, will will God look into my eyes and say, good job, well done, good and faithful servant. You did on earth what I put you on earth to do. You honored me. You trusted me. You talked about me. Good job. Come on in and enjoy eternity. You say, Pastor, I thought you were talking about marriage, you know, and how husbands and wives relate to each other. Yeah. 
I mean, how could we ever be members of the fraternity of fault finders when we've experienced the grace of God and we know that Jesus is coming? How could I look at my wife and only see her faults and only see her flaws when I don't see her through the grace of Jesus Christ who gave her to me? And know that Jesus is preparing her for heaven as well as me. How could we be critical and complaining all the time when we have experienced the grace of God? How can we constantly verbalize everything from sports to politics to movies and everything in between and yet never verbalize the rescuing, life-altering message of Jesus to the world? When's the last time you shared the gospel? I I would just ask you, Because we know that we need grace to run the race. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to stand before God right now and give an account for your life? Are you ready for that to be today? Husbands and wives, is your marriage ready? Men, you ready to offer your family to the Lord Jesus Christ when He appears? Saying here, Jesus, thank you, you've given them to me, you entrusted them to me, and I've raised them well. And I made your life a priority, and now I give them to you. Teenagers, College students, are you ready? I mean, are you prepared to stand before Jesus Christ? My goal today is not to make you fearful. It's to make you prepared. But I would also tell you, If we have conversations about these kinds of things, knowing that Jesus is coming, and yet it doesn't produce some level of fear and trepidation in our lives, woe is us if we are blind to the change that needs to happen in our own hearts. And I don't care if you're a small child or a precious senior adult. You're going to stand before God and give an account for your life. Are you ready? Are you ready? Is your children ready? Is your marriage ready?